As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, the plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to four to six with A and B, your Ohio State podcast on the Athletic. Bill Landis joined as always by Ari Wasserman, coming to you on a Monday afternoon. After another decent week of college football games, 19 days away from when Ohio State will kick off its 2020 season against Nebraska. On this episode, we're going to continue with our position group uh, previews, do a little uh, receiver talk. I think we're going to take a stock of what's happened so far in college football, maybe size up some of the college football playoff contenders, teams we think Ohio State will end up competing against once those rankings start coming out. Ohio State got a new commitment in its 2021 class. We'll discuss that as well. But first, Ari... Ohio State, to my utter shock, allowed us uh, media folk into Ohio Stadium on Saturday to watch 30 minutes of practice. Uh, I was there, and now I feel like I have all the answers about Ohio State's 2020 season. So what would you like to know about the 2020 Buckeyes? Are they going to win the national title? Yes. You would not believe the way that team was stretching on Saturday. (laughs) I've seen championship stretching. This was another one. I think one of the toughest things about being on the Ohio State beat is having to go to these open B-roll viewing windows during a time where they're just stretching and like doing light calisthenics and feeling like because this is the uh, rare time that you get to actually view practice to feel like you have to come away with something because people expect that even though that's not the purpose of what the viewing window is. And like I bet you that is completely um, exacerbated this year because of corona. It's like I was surprised they let you heavy breathing media members in there uh, to watch. And I know you were in the stands and they were on the field. But, you know, I think that the best things that those have always been about is who's on the side, who's on the bike, who's not participating, who's not there. And, you know, I, I know this is a few days old, but why don't you break down who who wasn't there and 
and what you kind of took away from your 15 minutes of being around uh, the team? 30 minutes, all right, 30 minutes. You don't need any more than that to, to know whether or not a team's going to win a championship. That uh, aspect of looking, searching like for who's not there and who's not there is a little different now. Usually when we're at the Woody, whether it's indoors or outdoors, there there are guys, like you said, on the bike on the side, or when we're outside, there's guys like in the sand pit doing stuff with the training staff, just like ra- random rehab things or even just running laps around the field. That didn't happen here at Ohio Stadium. Um, there weren't. To my knowledge, I can't. As far as I can remember, there weren't guys like doing random things off to the side. It was like you either dressed to practice or you weren't there. Um, and most of the team was there. This all the all the heavy hitters you'd expect were there. Justin Fields, you know, the running backs were all there. All the receivers were there. All the young receivers were there. Um, Zach Harrison, you know, White Davis, Sean Wade, all these guys were there. So nothing, no like headline grabbing names. I think were, were missing from that practice. I th- maybe the most interesting one who wasn't there was Demario McCall who uh, I, in a very timely fashion, wrote about over the weekend and, and maybe wasted you know 40 minutes of my life and, and 10 minutes of whoever read that's life about him because I, I don't know what his deal is with him now. Uh, Jalen Harris was not there. Elijah Gardner wasn't there. So three older receivers who I don't think we were expecting a ton from weren't there, but it was interesting. Uh, Court Williams was not there, and Ryan Watts was not there, freshman cornerback. And I have been on alert a little bit for maybe Court playing some as a true freshman in that bullet role, just with the way they've been talking about defense. So so I think that's noteworthy too. But the thing that's hardest about all of this, and, and it even gives me like some pause, even like naming who wasn't there, is because we don't know why they weren't there. Um, it was a weekend, so like it wasn't like they were at class, but you know, there's the potential for positive tests, sure, there's injuries, there's there's a bunch of different reasons for why someone might not be there. And like listing guys creates room for a ton of speculation. And Ohio State's line is like we're not talking about why guys aren't here, you'll get an availability report before the first game so that that's who wasn't there what that exactly means i'm not entirely sure this year more than any other year jumping to conclusions too quickly is a problem because as you know it could be as simple as they were around somebody who tested positive and they are contact tracing and quarantining right i mean it, it, it's yeah. not in the past it was pretty easy if somebody wasn't at practice you might be like well this person might not be on the team anymore but now that we're in a time where things are so sensitive in terms of protecting and mitigating the potential spread of a virus. I think it makes a lot of sense to kind of wait and see what you hear about that because I I don't think that's alarming at all. Now, I, I don't know, you know, maybe some have moved on or, you know, done different things, but for the most part, I, I think that like it's too early to really tell what that means for the longevity of the program. I think the good news is, is that, you know, not taking away from any of those guys, but none of those were, key people that Ohio State was going to be counting on a ton on the field and you know moving forward seeing the whole picture there must have been encouraging for a team that you know has waited so long to really you know prove it's a generational team yeah it's it's even tricky too in those settings because we're not there very long and I guess I'm in a different position because I was there by myself and there are other outlets that have you know four or five people there Um, so I with my own two eyes did not see Teron Vincent there but apparently he was there, and I just didn't see him. I didn't see Haskell Garrett, and Haskell Garrett was there. Someone took a photo of him, I was, and I was, like, shocked to see that Haskell Garrett was there. Um, like, I think he's going to play this year, which is, like, kind of an absurd thing to think about when you consider the fact that he was shot in the face, like, a month ago. Um, but he was there practicing. Like, we didn't see 
we saw stretching. We saw a little bit of individual work. We didn't see anything in the way of formations. We saw some tackling, but the defensive linemen weren't really part of those drills anyway. So whether or not when they ramped up to like full contact scrimmage mode, I would assume that Haskell Garrett's not part of that yet, but he was there with his pads on, with his helmet on, and he was a participant in, on some level in practice. And, and Teron Vincent apparently was there too. I didn't see him at all. I didn't see a photo of him, but OSU said he was there. Um, those are two important guys, I think, when you talk about Ohio State's defensive tackle depth because if they're not available for any period of time this season, that's a position that gets pretty thin pretty quickly once you get past like Tommy Togiai and Antoine Jackson. And I, I don't even know who you go to after that. Um, young guys, I guess. <clears throat> Darian Henry was working inside. Maybe he's a the guy they look toward. But that's a, that's a position to get a little hairy, I think, pretty quickly if those two guys don't play. So it's good that they were there. Whether that means they'll play against Nebraska, I, I have my doubts, but but maybe that means they won't be out for the entire season. So much to take away. So much. So many takeaways. Who did the you know best who butterfly like a full-on stretch? Grown man? Uh, best butterfly stretch. I used to hate doing those when I played soccer because um, I'm not a very flexible uh, I've person. been working out. Uh, Dewan Jones, maybe? Dewan Jones. Jones. I've been working out, which I know is a newsflash to everybody, but I found out the hard way that um, you should definitely butterfly stretch because I tried and attempted to do some squats and I pulled a little muscle in my groin area and it was kind of hard to walk for a few days. So you got to make sure you get those butterfly stretches in. I've been doing them. We got a, we got a bike, a, a Nordic track bike at the house, and I've been riding that um, and I've been doing the doing the stretches. Before Have you been using that? I've been meaning to ask you that. Landis told yeah, me you got yeah, the a couple, alternate to the Peloton. I got I got the Peloton with the heavier weight limit. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I got. Yeah, uh, yeah, a couple times a week. But the stretching is more of a workout for me than, than actually riding the bike. Is. Yeah, I never thought that stretching could be so hard. So maybe like we've been taking Ohio State's viewing window for granted. Like if somebody is really good at touching their toes, that might mean that they're more explosive. See? You know, I think that these are See? things that you have to like. Yeah. If you've never been through uh, a stretching period with a college football program, you don't really appreciate how uh, taxing it might be. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to glean. From I sweat things, when right? I tie my like, shoes. I, so, <laughs> I was hoping to get a little more like depth chart clarity, um, and, but I, I only think you can take so much from how guys line up in individual drills. They usually just line up kind of by seniority, um, and that's not necessarily what the depth chart's going to look like. Usually, even when we have these really short viewing windows, there's usually one period where. The whole starting offensive line will line up, and that actually did happen, but there wasn't. It was what you expected it to be: Nick Petit, Frere at right tackle, and, and Harry Miller at left guard, um, and all the returning starters. Otherwise, <clears throat> but there's usually a period where the defense does a pursuit drill, where they go out like the full eleven, like first team followed by the second team followed by the third team, and they like chase a guy with a ball around, just practicing pursuit, and that's where you like scribble madly to get the entire defensive three deep if you're lucky, if you're quick enough. Um, but that, of course, didn't happen. Uh, they're pretty. That's like one difference between Ryan Day and Urban Meyer. Um, not that there was a ton of practice access under Urban Meyer, but I don't really th- think he cared all that much what we saw. I think Ryan Day very much cares about what we see. He likes to play things closer closer to the vest a little bit. So there was really nothing you could gain out of Saturday other than like what guys looked like and who was there. And you were just going to say which is not like a monster. Not nothing. G. Scott and Julian Fleming look like monsters. Yeah. <laughs> for fre- for freshmen like these look like I mean dudes. G Scott I did when he was at the opening last year so that's not surprising Fleming was a little bit smaller than him but G Scott like 
That's why I wrote a story from the opening last year. Why is this guy not a five-star prospect? Because he's built like Calvin Johnson. <laughs> I don't know, you know, how it's going to plan out, play out. But you know, they don't. As years go on, the the bodies who come into the Ohio State program are more and more advanced. I feel like because like when yeah. I I I think it was like a year ago now, but I was out visiting in Dallas and I went to Rockwall to write a story about Jackson Smith and the Jigba. And I don't want to give up too much of the receiver talk because we're probably going to talk about it at the end of this, or we are going to talk about it at the end of this podcast. But he looked like a regular high school student when I wrote about him. You know, I ate breakfast with him and his head coach, and I thought I wrote a nice story about him. And then I saw a picture of him recently, and it's like that dude grew. I, and these yeah. guys look like they've been in the program for two or three years now. So, um, which is kind of crazy considering they weren't here for a long time because yeah. of practice getting shut yeah. down. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a testament to you know, the whole adage of three-star kids have more talent or more heart than the five-star kids because they need to want it more. But I think it's a good idea to – or a good time to point out that these five-star prospects are five-star prospects because they put in the work. And just because they were limited in terms of their exposure to the Ohio State program doesn't mean that they weren't given workout uh, regimens and eating plans and ideas of how to take care of their bodies. And a lot of these guys, not all of them, but a lot of them have resources to, to get in the gym and – do what they have to do in their alone time and it's good to see that Ohio State's players took that seriously for the most part I remember in 2017 camp when we showed up there on that first I guess it was a Friday morning early for the first workout and I think it might have been only freshman working out at the time we got outside on the turf fields outside of the Woody and Chase Young was standing there and he like had his jersey rolled up because when you look like that you roll your jersey up and I just remember looking at him and going like who the hell is that like who is this NFL player that's suddenly on Ohio State's roster like he was a monster. I've never really seen anybody look the way that Chase Young looked as a true freshman. And, like, they're different positions and different body types. But when I saw G. Scott, I was like, yeah, that's that's kind of the same thing. Like, he is, I know, like he's, a, he's got some connections to NFL people, I think, through his dad up in Seattle. Like, he, he might have some more resources maybe that, than other kids have. But even when you have those resources, yeah, you, you got to put them to work. And, and clearly, he's putting them to work. And you also have the body type to do it. And the thing that always stood out to me about Scott was that against the best defensive backs in the country who were also participating in the opening. This man was physically out performing these guys. He was jumping over them. He was grabbing balls out of the air. Um, He's faster, too. Like, I have a lot of hopes for him in terms of, like, what he should turn out to be at Ohio State. And it's like you you recruit four players at one position group who rank in the top 65 players nationally. That's an obvious thing to say. Ohio State's got a lot um, coming in, but – I, I mean, I mean, I mean it in the terms of instant impact. I expect a lot yeah. about. I don't know if we're like undercutting ourselves here. We'll, we'll, we're going to get to that, but um, it's certainly physically in a position to do the things that you would expect them to do to compete for a national championship. They have the players. They have the dogs. Uh, let's do. I'll do two more just quick things off that. Um, we'll we'll change the order up here. We'll just spin right into the receiver preview since we're kind of talking about it already. But but Master Teague looked. Like full go, as much as you know, full go as anyone can look. I think coming off an Achilles injury, I thought I thought he moved really well, looked good, and he was he was first in line for the tailback reps. An individual, um, Trey Sermon was right behind him, and and then it was uh, Steel Chambers and Mayan Williams. <clears throat> Mayan Williams looks like a little bowling ball too, but I mean that in a good way. And the other like thing, a muscle hamster with the running backs, muscle hamster. Yeah, he is little. He's very he's lo- he's low to the ground. He's compact. He's built differently. Like Mike Weber was kind of like that, but I think Maya Williams is even more so that way. Um, 
he's in a really interesting spot. I'm actually going to write a little bit about him this week. We talked with Tony Alford um, later this week. But I think Maya Williams comes into the program at a very interesting time, given what's in front of him and what's coming behind him. But he looked really good, just like from a physical standpoint, compared to what he looked like in high school especially. And then um, Marcus Crowley was out there. I kind of expected him not to be, based on how they've been talking about him coming back from his ACL injury. They've sort of slow played or downplayed it a little bit and almost made me feel like he wasn't going to be ready for the opener. But he was running around at least, like whether he can cut and and whether or not he's full go at the moment, I'm not sure. But he was in pads and he was running straight line and he looked fluid doing it. So maybe he's a little further along than maybe than I anticipated um, before we showed up there. That's a that's a big must for them, huh? Yeah, I think when you're in your position, we talked about running backs last week, but when you're in position when you're not totally sure exactly what you're going to get, at least we're not, I think any time you can add to your depth with a guy like Marcus Crowley, that's a good thing. You want, I think you want all your horses available when you're you're not totally sure what the picture's going to look like. All right, let's talk receivers. Actually, before we talk receivers, let me do my plugs. You want to tell folks what you wrote this week over the weekend, your recruiting thing? and then sure. uh, um, Go to theathletic.com well, slash 4-6. And then you can read what Ari wrote over the weekend. Uh, maybe this will be a nice segue to talking about Texas and Oklahoma for a minute and Ohio State in the playoff picture, too, if you wanted to do that before we go right into receivers. Oh, man, I'm ruining, I'm ruining all the segues. Yeah. I'm ruining all the segues. All right, let's talk about receivers, and then we'll do that. Wait. But still go to theathletic.com slash 4-6 to get a dollar, dollar per month on your subscription. We're doing receiver preview, at- and then we'll do that, and then we'll do the other thing. And then we'll finish the podcast. After every game since I came to The Athletic, um, I wrote a story on Sundays called Final Thoughts. And those stories did pretty well, and they were like my favorite things to write. Just kind of like everything I thought about the game, um, everything that it taught us, big picture stuff, sometimes very small picture stuff. And I'm going to really miss that. Bill is going to take over naturally and do that story, and I think he's excited to do it. I don't think it'll be as good, but I think it'll still be pretty good. (laughs) Um, But as I consume college football now from a different perspective um, as part of my new um, role at The Athletic, I still wanted to do final thoughts. So um, it was a way to undercut Bill, uh, but also a way to do the thing that everybody at our company does now (laughs) Uh, and write about recruiting and just the context of the sport based on the things that we, you know, have seen. And uh, I'm going to try to do this every Saturday or Sunday night or Sunday, Saturday night or Sunday morning, depending on how the games go. Um, and whether or not there's something there to, to do, I'm going to try to do it more often than not. But, like, Texas losing, I think that we should just go right into this because it's just – we just talk about receivers. Yeah, we'll do that, and yeah. then we'll do the thing, and then we'll do the but, other thing. Yeah. Um, I watched the Texas game in the morning, and I saw Texas lost uh, to TCU um, despite having the fifth most talented roster in college football. And that just, like, kind of, like, got the, the thing flowing a little bit about Texas and Tom Herman and – then, of course, later in the evening, Oklahoma lost for the second consecutive week for the first time in, like, 100 years. And it's, like, kind of the same issue because I think Oklahoma has the seventh most talented roster, all according to the 247 Sports composite team rankings. And, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit with Andy Staples on Friday on his podcast, but, like, I don't understand it. And the thing that's most interesting, I guess, for um, our listeners' perspectives is that these programs are being led – um, entirely or in part by former high-profile Ohio State assistants. And, like, I don't know what's going on in Texas. I feel like Texas should be a top three most easy place to coach in terms of talent accumulation and development and winnable conference, and, like, they just can't they just can't do it. And it's super confusing to me because they have the players to do it. And I talk about all the time we talk about on this podcast, Ohio State has the players to do it, and they do it. 
So it's a combination of great coaching and, of course, the talent accumulation phase. And then um, Oklahoma, who may not have what you need on defense from a talent standpoint, just gets steamrolled by everybody they play. It's terrible. Their tackling looked like the movie Little Giants. <laughs> you watch that, right? The movie or the game? I've seen them both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're the same thing. You only need to see one. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. like, Alex Grinch was like, you can't lose this guy. And he goes out to Oklahoma, and there's a lot of really wonderful things about how he's one of the bright, brightest young coordinators in the country and destined to be a head coach and all that stuff. And it's like their defense is, is terrible. And it's like as we go into a Red River rivalry this weekend – I, there's no juice. I don't even care if I watch it. It's like, who cares? They're already eliminated from the college football playoff discussion, and it's just like, I think this is a nice segue, at least to talk in part about like what you think Ohio State does from that lens it, that keeps them in this position. They don't only recruit well, and I think they, they clearly recruit at a level that's a full step or two steps or three steps ahead of Oklahoma and Texas. But cultivating that talent and, and developing it the right way, obviously, is an important part of running a program. Uh, but, like, why, in your far-out view, do you think this isn't going on? I've got a few theories about, like, how tough it is to actually rank the top 50 players in Texas and maybe they're not being ranked the right way and maybe the talent is deceiving because, yes, everybody wants to get the top 10 players in the state and the top 10 players in Texas are really, really good. But then, I don't know, you have to have a good eye um, from players 15 to 50 in the state of Texas. And, like, I think Jackson Smith and the Jigba is the perfect example of this. This is a guy that yeah. was a three-star or a low-end four-star top 350 prospect like a year into uh, before he became a high-profile player. Ohio State was all about him. Ohio State got his commitment, and Texas wasn't even recruiting him yet. And it's just like, okay, what's going on here? You know, at first, I thought that Ohio State was doing what Michigan to Texas, what Michigan State is doing to Ohio State and Ohio, which is taking the players that are too leftover or, or not quite good enough to earn an offer, and then taking a flyer on them. And then it turns out that he's a top thirty player nationally. It's like Texas did not recruit that kid. And like this isn't a Texas podcast or an Oklahoma podcast, but I think it's an interesting way to frame an Ohio State discussion because a we're familiar with the people who are running the other programs, and b Ohio State does the thing that they do, which is accumulate talent at a high level. But what do you think that next step is? Is it X's and O's? Is it culture? Um, is it the way that they're developed once they're in the program? Is it? Do you learn more about NFL draft from NFL draft numbers than you do from recruiting numbers? Like, I don't understand how teams that talented could be so, so bad. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. 
yeah, I think you you touched on it. It's it's the development. Like it's it's your eye. Once you're on that level, and like I, I'm not saying this in a way to undermine your uh, life ethos of stars mattering because they do. But then once you once you establish that you're on that upper echelon of the teams that can get the high highly ranked four and five star prospects, and, and Texas I think is there because it's where of its location. Oklahoma might be a step below that, with the exception of the quarterback position. But even so, like these are two these are top fifteen caliber talented teams. And that's based off of recruiting rankings. And I think you make an interesting point of, of whether or not it's harder to evaluate within the state of Texas. So I think it goes to a little bit to your eye. I think Ohio State has a pretty good eye, even when it's trying to get these three-star guys or lower four-star guys, whether they're in the state or out of state. I think they do a good job of actually finding guys that are going to pan out. But to me, it's mostly about development once they get there. Like Texas doesn't churn out NFL draft picks anymore. I, like I don't. I would like to love to look at the, the data on that. This is anecdotal, I guess. But Ohio State's had fifty draft picks since twenty fifteen, and I, I would I would venture to guess that like Texas has not even had like half of that since then. Um, and o- Oklahoma the same way. It's like you want to go play quarterback, you go play for Lincoln Riley. I get that, and I think that's valid. But literally every other position, that's not the case. I don't I don't think at Oklahoma and at Ohio State like they develop basically every position. Now you can you can nitpick it here or there, but they've developed almost every position like fairly evenly, and get guys to the NFL sort of regardless of where you're at. Texas has and, had 16 uh, draft picks total since 2015, four of which came in 15. Yeah, and Ohio State's at 50. Alabama, I think, is right there too, with maybe 49 or 50 as well. Um, that's a that's a huge that's like, discrepancy. But, but, but but the numbers the like if if you compare the numbers sort of when guys arrive they're very similar but when they leave they're they're, they're not very similar totally I, I disagree with that I think there's a huge gap between one and five Did I say very similar I, that's what I thought I mean sometimes I people say things s- on this podcast and don't know what they're saying you know uh, per my yeah, last week yeah, that happened that happened last dog week. genitals I don't um, know what I was saying. <laughs> I think there are I think they are similar enough that the expectations aren't so different um, but on the other end of that when guys leave the program. They're not similar at all. Yeah, yeah. I guess coming into it, you could make that case. But just just to put things in perspective here, according to the current two four seven sports composite rankings, uh, talent for total roster, Ohio State's eighty five scholarship players are fourteen five star prospects, which is second most in America, and fifty two four stars. Texas has four five star players, and f- Ohio State has fourteen five star prospects yeah. on its roster. Really. That's more than I would have guessed. I mean, Justin Hilliard's still on the roster. Like, you, there's some hidden ones in yeah, there that are, yeah, that are, yeah, you know, sure. But ten more five star prospects um, on a roster of 85 is a very significant number. And like, yeah, as you go through, um, you want me to do it? I mean, Baron Browning, count them: Baron Browning, Wyatt Davis, Justin Fields, Julian Fleming, um, Sean Wade, Zach Harrison. Justin Hilliard, Harry Miller, um, Tyreek Johnson, Nick Paris Petit. Johnson Jr., uh, Harry Miller, Nicholas Petit Freire, uh, Jackson Smith, the Jigbo was a five star at the end of it. Mm. Um, Teron Vincent, Sean Wade, um, Garrett Wilson. Did I say 16? Yeah. Um, so. so it's just like they kind of sneak 14, up on you yeah. too a little bit, you know. Like the guys like Tyreek Johnson who aren't necessarily in the mix of our discussions, were still count towards a total, and that's part of it too, Bill. That's the thing that I don't think people get. It's like, well, 
what people were asking me after the that I wrote the story on Saturday, why do those composite rankings matter if three-star prospects can outperform themselves? Like Kyle Trask at Florida is the perfect example of this. He was like a two-star, three-star prospect who rated outside of the two thousand top 2,000 players um, in his class and now is probably going to be a first-round draft pick. It's like, well, then how is that accounted for with Florida? Are they better? I think at some times the quarterback position is the biggest jump drastically if you have um, that not accounting into your total composite. But if you have 14 five-star prospects and five of them don't pan out, that means you still have nine five-star prospects, which is half of your starting lineup um, in any given game that did pan out. So at a place like Texas, who only has four on their entire roster, that means if they have the same miss ratio, which could be one or two, then they're drastically behind the eight ball. It's all a law of averages. The more players you get, the more likely you are to endure misses. So I think Texas being the fifth most talented team in America sounds great, and I, but I wouldn't put Texas in the same discussion with Georgia, who has 16 five-stars and 51 four-stars. That's crazy. Georgia is the mm-hmm. most talented team in college football. That said, it's still super surprising that these teams are struggling with Texas Tech and losing outright to TCU. Like that, I'm not trying to say that these guys should be in the same category as a national championship winning team, and I think that we've seen Oklahoma struggle when they get onto the same field as Clemson and Ohio State and Alabama's of the world. And the reason why is because they only have five four-star prospects and 46, and they're the eighth-ranked team in that list so there's a direct correlation between the two but still there there's a bigger gap between Oklahoma and Kansas State than there is between Oklahoma and Ohio State so like it still doesn't make sense that they're losing or struggling with teams that should be in their vicinity and it, it, it kind of like makes you think more about the playoffs and it's like every time I watch these games and I'm trying to like look at these lists and I'm writing stories that aren't pertaining to Ohio State I still consider Ohio State for this podcast and like everything that we do in, in our coverage. And I just like, what is it? Are they just, is it just more five stars in the door, more out? Is it just better development, better strength coach, better culture, more accountability, better attitude? Like, I know all those things matter. I guess you have to be inside the Texas and Oklahoma programs to do it. And I think more so Texas than Oklahoma because despite the fact that Oklahoma and Texas have played very close games on the field, Oklahoma has dwarfed Texas in the national perspective because they've owned the Big 12 and have continually made the well, they make the playoff the last three years. Mm-hmm. So they've like kind of – I think Oklahoma has reached their potential because they've gotten it done. I don't know why Texas, who's a more talented <laughs> team than Oklahoma, is so underperforming. I don't – I just – it's like a hard thing to understand to me. And it's just like when you get to that point where you can't understand it, it's like, well, do they have the right coach? Yeah, I thought Tom Herman was going to be hot shit when he left Ohio State. And, like, he was at Houston, but he has not been at Texas. I don't know, like, if that job's too big for him or there's just been misevaluation in their recruiting or if he's just not doing a good good enough job on game days. But he was, like, after 2014 with what he did with Cardale in that playoff run, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, um, he wasn't, like, able to sustain the momentum. I don't, I don't know what happened. It's kind of a bizarre thing. I guess it happens a lot that, that guys are considered like risers and the next next big thing and then don't quite live up to the, the billing. And, and maybe there was like an impossible standard set for Tom Herman. I have no idea. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, but the idea that like he hasn't been able to, to figure it, hasn't been able to figure out at Texas when he has a very talented team in a league that's not all that good is like, frankly shocking. Yeah, I um, the thing about it is, is to me, coaches fail when they can't recruit and like Texas has been kind of 
puzzling a little bit at times because they've missed out on some players um, in their own state. Like when Ohio State went in and took three out of the top six in the what, what class was it, 2016? 17. 17 class. And it's just like that can't happen to Texas. But at the same time, they've still been signing really good classes. I mean, they're the fifth most talented team in college football. So, like, to me, the, the hard part is always more about what you how you get the talent in the door more so than what you do with the talent. And it's like he seems to be having the opposite issue, which shouldn't be the case. And and everybody who's on the coaching matters more than recruiting matters bandwagon will like use Texas as the perfect example. But if you look at the teams that are most talented in college football, the two major exceptions, um, I guess there's actually three um, if you like look at it this year, but the, the major exceptions in USC hasn't played yet are, are Texas – um, Oklahoma and Notre Dame and Texas A&M. So those those are, but for the most part, the top ten teams in the talent composite rankings: the Georgias, Alabamas, Clemsons, LSU's, Floridas, are the best teams in college football right now. There's no mistake about it. So when you see a team underachieving the way Texas is, they're the exception, not the rule. And like a, yeah. an examination of what is going on there needs to be done because it doesn't make any sense. So now, uh, from an Ohio State perspective. The Big 12 is basically eliminated. It seems like every week that we go by, and it is kind of peculiar that teams have played three or four games now and Ohio State's still not playing for a few weeks. Um, but like when you try to put it into the same perspective, I just don't know if there's any real – like the only team that would scare me if I were an Ohio State fan were the three other ones that are really good, Georgia, Alabama, and Clemson. There's no other team. Like Clemson and Texas are completely non-factors now. Oklahoma State is the most – Oklahoma and Texas are not factors. Yeah. You said Clemson and Texas. Oh, sorry. Oklahoma and, and Texas. Sorry. Oklahoma State right now is the leader or the flag carrier of the Big 12 to make the, the college football playoff right now. That Oklahoma State team only has 82 out of the 85 players that even had recruiting profiles and the 42nd most talented team uh, in college football behind Purdue and Illinois. Yeah, that, I don't, I'm, I'm not holding my breath waiting for that. I think the Big 12 is going to eat itself alive. Let me say that again. Not be part Oklahoma of State is behind Purdue and Illinois and UCLA and Maryland in the standings. How is that even possible? I mean, they're not they're they're pretty low in the pecking order. Even though they are like they can recruit Texas and Oklahoma, I guess is a decent state of, decent enough state to recruit in. But they're down the wrong. That might quite be a, a good story idea. You gonna go talk to Gundy about recruiting? Yeah, that's a that's a complex subject at the moment. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll individual. maybe I'll let maybe I'll let it breathe <laughs> till December and then we'll we'll yeah. But it um it is kind of crazy, kind of when you look at these and puts things in perspective. Like Arkansas is the uh, joke of the SEC, and they're the 26th most talented team in America, which is more talented than Wisconsin. It's like Arkansas played zone against Mississippi State. <laughs> it worked. What a novel idea! Um, I could stare at this list all day and like have my mind continually blown. It's like Maryland is like non-competitive in the Big Ten. Like every time Ohio State plays Maryland, we joke about whether or not it's going to be a 50-point game, and like they're the 31st most talented team in America. Yeah, they always have skill guys. Yeah. They, they, they never have anything on the lines, which is why they get pummeled, but they always have skill guys. Yeah. And they got they got Talia Tango Vailoa. Your Indiana squad's out of the top 50, bud. What are you going to do? You Them and SMU, two of the hot shot up and coming aired out, out teams are on their way up, you know? 
Indiana is going to be the new uh, the new standard bearer for coaching mattering more than recruiting yeah. rankings. Just wait and see. Iowa State, the team that just beat Oklahoma and is the talk of the town right now, has less talent on its roster than Vanderbilt. Interesting. Once in future Ohio State coach Matt Campbell. Should I just like do a big win? Big win for him over the ten. No, we're not going to go through and list all the teams no, no, I just, where they're ranked. We are hosting Ohio no, State. No, podcast. no, I know. I'm just saying, like my own personal time. You think I should just go like write ten surprising things to find on this list? Yeah. People love lists. Yeah. So there's that dog again. It's blind. Who? Uh, <laughs> what do you? So we have. Clemson and Alabama, obviously, both have looked pretty good here through these first couple weeks. Like they're they're the teams you thought would be there, the teams that are going to be there. What do you make of like Georgia and Florida? If we're if we're living in a world where the Pac twelve is out unless Mike Gundy and them boys win the win the Big Twelve undefeated, um, who do you think is going to be there in the end? If we're also to assume that Ohio State is going to be in this mix for for the four playoff spots by the end of the season, it's like Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia. Who? Georgia, Alabama in two weeks. Major, Can't wait. major Can't game. Can't wait. Wow, that's a weekend of the fifteenth. Yeah. No, so no, I'm no. Pretty no. sure. Yeah. It's not, no. it's not this weekend. It's next week. Wow. I cannot wait. Is the Masters that day or something too? Isn't there like something crazy happening that day as well? Yeah, I think so. No, the Masters are Maybe. in November. I think. I don't know. I'm not a golf guy. I'm not yeah. a golf guy. Um. I don't know. Like. Uh, LSU's out. Um, I don't know. I can't wait to see if like Oregon, who now avoids Ohio State, has a clearer path to get in. And I wonder if we're gonna like I've had this inkling. I'm just assuming the Pac-12 is not going to get in because they're only playing seven games, right? Yeah, I don't know. I think they should be able to get in. I think they should too, but my assumption is they they won't even get a foot in the door unless the unless the SEC like completely eats itself alive. Um, then maybe. Would you take a seven over seven and zero Oregon team or a nine and one Ohio State team? Nine and or I guess it'd be eight, eight and one, one eight and one Ohio State. Ohio State. I'd also take like a two loss SEC team, depending on how that went. You take two loss like objectively, over objectively Ohio State. Yeah, like if yeah, maybe over a one loss Ohio State. Uh, I mean, it depends on who the loss is, I guess. Like, if Ohio State lost to Michigan State but still won the Big Ten or Indiana or something. Like, if it was a Penn State loss that prohibited Ohio State from playing for a Big Ten title, then maybe not. Yeah. But if they still had a title, I think I'd take Ohio State. So you're telling me that context matters in playoff discussion? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I am. Yeah, I, I just I feel, don't like, know. If, I think, I feel uh, like if I the think... team goes undefeated through seven games and they pass the eye test, then in this weird wor- world – like if Oregon, like just, um, just destroys everybody in the Pac-12 in a seven and zero, I think that that warrants discussion every bit as much as an eight and one or a nine and one team. Yeah, I think it does too. I just don't. I just don't know if in the end, if if they'd win it because the Pac-12 is not particularly strong. Um, it's a similar conversation, I think, to the Big Twelve. Like even if if Oklahoma were to be, you know, not if they didn't have two losses right now, and we thought Oklahoma might win the Big Twelve. With one or no losses, I think that's still a conversation because the league's just not that hard. Yeah, um, I think I think the SEC by playing a ten game conference schedule like bought itself some opportunity to get into the playoff with two losses because for some of these teams it's a gauntlet. Like they they set it up nicely, like they give Alabama, Missouri, and that's not like a real test, but 
you know, I still think playing 10 SEC games on the whole is more difficult than playing seven Pac-12 games or, or eight Big Ten games. Like, obviously, it's, it's extra games. I know, but you could say that every year, Bill. It's easier to go through a Pac-12 schedule than an SEC schedule every year. No, but this is different because they're playing more. The SEC doesn't play 10 conference games every year. They're playing No, I know, but to simplify it, you could just always say that it's harder to be an SEC team than a Pac-12 team. That's not different this year. No, but I'm, I guess what I'm getting at, like this particular year, the I, I feel like if there was ever going to be a two-loss team to make the playoff in a four-team field, it could be a two-loss SEC team in a year where they're forced to play 10 conference games. Yeah, I guess so. It's just a matter of whether or not the Pac-12 is going to figure into the discussion. Because if you remove an entire Power 5 conference out of it, and you have undefeated or Big Ten champion Ohio State who gets a spot, Alabama gets a spot, Clemson gets a spot. Like, who's the fourth team? Is the discussion between 7-0 and Oregon um, undefeated uh, SMU or somebody, like, cool from the AAC? Yeah. And then two lost Georgia? It's like whoever wins the Florida-Georgia game and then loses the SEC championship. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how they... Like, if Georgia... If Georgia... I'm assuming Georgia, yeah. If Georgia beats Florida, if Georgia loses to Alabama and beats Florida, then loses to Alabama again, and they're sitting there with two losses, and their only two losses are to Alabama. I think if you lose twice to a team that's in the field, then you're out. Like I, I, I don't know. Like I know that it's like easy to go. Well, they lost to Alabama twice. It's just like then that team that's already in there has already eliminated you. Like I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know I if guess, it's just like as fair. a fan, a fan way of looking at it. But it's just I would rather see. Alabama play an undefeated AAC team that I'd rather than them playing a team that lost twice or a team like Oklahoma. Yeah, but that's not well, that's not the that's not the decision making process though. I get like I agree with you. I'd rather see that too, but that's not how they decide the playoff field. No, I understand and that, I, but I, I, I also think the, the point of even the point of even bringing it up is this is like does it does it scare you at all? Like that that particular scenario Georgia loses twice to Alabama, but otherwise wins all of his games and what's a what's a decent schedule, fairly tough schedule. They're sitting there with two losses, and like Ohio State loses somewhere along the way. Like if you're an, if you're a one loss Ohio State, do you fear a lurking Georgia non SEC champ with two? And losses? And Ohio State is an S or is the Big Ten champ with one loss? Yeah. No. What if they're a one loss team without a Big Ten championship? Maybe. And that then it, that 2015 feeling comes lurking back. Yeah. Because, like, if that happens, the one-loss team without a Big Ten championship means the team that they – probably most-case scenarios means the team that they lost to won the Big Ten. Yeah, unless they were to get knocked off, like, by Wisconsin or something. Yeah. Like, Penn State beats Ohio State and it goes to the Big Ten title game and then loses to Wisconsin. Doesn't necessarily mean Wisconsin's in. Wisconsin could have two losses at that point. Yeah, too. but – Last year, I don't want to like go down too far into the black hole, but if Wisconsin would have beaten Ohio State, I would have made a case for Wisconsin to go. Yeah. That would have been really interesting. I remember talking about that. At halftime? I was like, if they beat Ohio State, yes. they'd be a one-loss Big Ten champion who beat Ohio State. Why would you send Ohio State over them? They just beat them on the field. Because Ohio, week Ohio of the year. State beat them before. Yeah, it's, it was their second matchup. I know, but the most recent one should matter more, right? The one on the neutral field, not the one that happened in the rain six weeks ago in Ohio Stadium. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, like, it's I like guess that's so. the I game. So. It's worthy of discussion. It's worthy of discussion for sure. Yeah. Or it would have been. Yeah. It would have been. I'm just trying to figure out how, like, fire. <laughs> yeah, it was. 
It definitely <laughs> was. <laughs> Couldn't believe it was happening to the Bucks. Um, I'm just trying to figure out like how m- potentially messy this playoff picture could be, and I don't. I think short of my Georgia scenario, I'm not sure it will. Like Clemson and Miami play this week. Um, I think Miami is a 14 and a half point favorite, and I don't think the U is back, so I fully expect Clemson to win that game. Um, I think Bama rolls. They look really good. Florida and Georgia are interesting, but I think Georgia has flaws on offense and Florida has flaws on defense. Notre Dame will eventually get eliminated by Clemson. I think it's a and Big Twelve. I agree with you. I think is out. I think it's a pretty clean playoff picture. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, and we're three weeks into this, so it's probably absurd to say that, but yeah, I think even Ohio State losing a weird game in the middle of the season won't matter. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. As long as it's not a game that keeps them out of the Big Ten Championship. Yeah. It's always the same thing. Like, you can't... Don't lose the game you can't lose. Yep. Which is what happened to them in... 16, even though they got in. <laughs> but, um, yeah. It I happened to them in 15, when, and they still should have gotten in in 15, and it happened to them again in 16, and they made up for it in 16 by sending a yeah, when they vastly inferior in, yeah. team to the one that they left out to make up for it. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on from that. That turned into like a Texas recruiting uh, discussion no, no, I that think, I wasn't quite anticipating. I think that that was pretty Ohio State-centric. I would love to look at, like, to put a bow on that conversation. Um, I think I saw somebody maybe, it was either in the comments of your story or maybe replied to you on Twitter, said something like, the nature of Texas football is that everyone spreads it out it and throws it around. And dunk and thing. That was the, a comment. None of, none of the good players want to play defense. And it's like, that's probably true. And then I, I would love to dig into it. It's like, okay, if all the best players are playing offense in Texas and there's just like a handful of really good defensive players like Jeff Okuda and Baron Browning, like how many of those guys are going to Texas? Yeah, I mean, as I read the comment, all I kept thinking about was Okuda. So I was like, I, like, have you ever seen Family Guy when Peter Griffin's in a room and he just like has like a '50s pop song in his head while other people are talking and he's like bobbing his head yeah. like that's a, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, the players are good here, so I, I mean, are they are they not good in Texas anymore on defense? I don't know. It'd be worth. It's a. It's a. Might be a worthwhile study. It's an interesting perspective, I think. Well, the thing I... It would make sense. Like, if you were a high school football player, what would you rather do? Because these teams are so big. Like, there's a lot of giant schools where guys don't have to play on both sides of the ball. So, it's like, if your team's going to spread it out and throw 60 times a game, I'd rather play receiver than defensive back. Yeah. I mean, if you just go look at the top uh, 221 and 2021 recruits um, in the Texas in the state of Texas for 2021, number one's offensive tackle, number two is running back, number three is offensive guard, number four is... Um, 
an athlete. Number five is a strong side defensive end, then athlete, running back, offensive tackle, offensive guard. Only two of the top ten players are defensive players. So, And actually only two of the top 19. Two of the top 18 players in the state of Texas are defensive players. Are they defensive backs? Uh, one's a defensive end, Toon Mache Adelaide, which we should have known on the top of our yeah. head. And the <laughs> other one was uh, defensive end, Clayton Smith, who is committed to Oklahoma. And that's why teams run 40 yards behind Texas and Oklahoma's defensive backs. I uh, wrote a story about how Oklahoma's no longer good as they used to be because they don't recruit really well in Texas anymore uh, four years ago. And then Oklahoma, the following day after the story ran, came in and beat Ohio State's ass in Ohio Stadium. So I need to take a take a little minute after that because that's because Oklahoma rolled out that newfangled uh, play-action pass that the Buckeyes weren't ready <laughs> yeah. for. Did you know you could fake the ball to a running back and then throw it to yes. a late end? <laughs> Greg Chiano didn't. God, so do you want to end up? You want to toss any more shade on Grinch and any of the former Ohio State coaches before we move on to the receivers? Only, only to apologize once more for ever writing that Ohio State should have kept Alex Grinch. What do you think the reason is for the uh, buzz, though? For real, like a real discussion. I know. I see a- his defense. His defenses of Washington State were good. And they were fun, and like they limit, they got a lot of takeaways, and he had like a thing they called it like the speed D, whatever that means, and it's like I don't know. They were they were his off defenses at Washington State like overperformed, and he got here and it was a weird situation. Like I think he came here believing he was going to be the guy, and then Greg Schiano ended up coming back here unexpectedly, and then there was a weird kind of two-man thing going on with the back end of the defense with he and Shiano and it was like Shiano's defense and he and, and Grinch don't do remotely the same thing and I don't know I don't know what happened all I know is that the defense sucked that year the safeties weren't very good and then Grinch left to go to Oklahoma and his defense sucked there too so I don't know what happened the defense is sucking in the big 12 is like a Bermuda Triangle discussion to me it's just like why do they all suck all the time it's like accepted that they're all going to give up 40 points a game the over-unders in all their games are 80 like I don't understand, I don't understand why it can't be done. It hasn't been done by anybody. No defense in the Big Twelve in the past five years has had a stellar defense. TCU, it's usually decent. Why? Because they only give up thirty-one points a game instead of fifty. Like, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I just don't. No, <laughs> no I know, but why yes, is yeah. that? What is it? The, the style of ball in that area of the country? The players are recruiting from where they're coming from. Like, why can't anybody stop anybody down there? Are the offenses just it's too just, good? I think that's part of it. It's a style of play. Like pa- passing is harder to defend in teams that line up and play in the box and run the ball, obviously. Um, and I think a lot of it might be what that person said to you about the the players not wanting to play defense down there. And it's like there's a there's a shortage of impact defensive players to recruit in that area. And the ones that do exist go to other places <laughs> because they don't want to play in a league that's going to throw the ball seventy times a game. All right, this is the story I'm going to do. If you guys don't know, every good story that I've ever written uh, is because Bill told me what to write uh, through text message. That's right. I'm, I'm Ari's part-time editor. Sorry, Mitch. Mitch is the full-time editor. For both Mitch of us. Light. Yeah, he makes us both look good. Okay, uh, real quick before we do receiver preview. Zen Mahowski. Zen Mahowski. Three-star offensive lineman from Floyd's Knobs, Indiana, committed to Ohio State on Saturday night. Not surprising. We've talked about him before. 
He's a third commitment on the offensive line in the class. Uh, I believe the 20th overall commitment in the class. Still think they need one more offensive lineman. Still don't think it's going to be Tristan Lay. Um, but as I said last episode, I do think Zen is a good pickup for them. He's like an interesting prospect. He's not been playing offensive line very long. He's put on a lot of weight in the last year, kind of growing into his frame. But he's pretty athletic and versatile, too. Um, they still need something. There's still something missing. They still need a tackle, like a big-time tackle. But um, – I think he's a nice addition to what they have with Donovan Jackson and Ben Chrisman. Do you want to talk about stud now, or do you want to talk about receivers? No, I'll pocket. I'll pocket that rant again. We're going to do offensive line preview maybe next week. We can talk more about. I'm not going to be on that show. We're going to combine offensive line and tight end together to really get into your wheelhouse. <laughs> it's not so <laughs> much that I can't talk about it. I think it's more because I don't want to get in the way of your shine. Yeah, maybe you'll host that episode. Yeah, I'll just host and I'll just ask and you. I'll just like toss up the the softballs. Yeah, and I'll talk for forty five yeah. minutes. Okay, let's do receivers. Uh, like Ju- Juice Man, Jamison Williams, he's your guy. He's making a move. I think the most interesting thing that can happen in preseason, especially with a team like Ohio State that tries to not give really anything away, scheme wise, personnel wise, in interviews is who people mention unprompted, who coaches mention unprompted. And Jamison Williams is that guy this year. I think Brian Hartline brought him up. Kevin Wilson brought him up. Um, they don't have like a traditional sort of ex-big-bodied Michael Thomas, even like Austin Mack was that kind of receiver, at least among the older returning guys. G. Scott and, and Julian Fleming, I think, are that. But I think your th- top three receivers, almost without a doubt, unequivocally, are Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, and Jamison Williams. You, Jamison Williams, I'm not mistaken, right? He's the guy you went to St. Louis and did the story yeah, on. Yeah, you know this. The, yeah, I got the Ted, Teddy Ginn yep. stuff. Um, are you surprised that he's like kind of made this jump in his second no. year? Okay. I'm a little bit. Are you surprised because, I mean, man, he's a top 85 player nationally. No, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I just thought, I just thought, not that I thought he was going to be bad. I just thought, like, okay, you have Olave and Wilson, and you have these four really good freshmen. Some guys are going to get knocked down wrong, and I think that has happened in some cases. But I wondered if Jamison Williams might be part of that group, and it looks like I'm going to be very he's wrong about that. He's freakishly fast. Yes. And he's six foot two. Yeah. What was the game? Was it the Rutgers game last year where yes. he caught that ball on the sideline and just like exploded through it? It was Ted Ginn. It was pretty impressive. Like, he's a full on sprinter. Not like almost qualified for the Olympics fast. Yeah, kind of speed that like makes you like take a take a step back and pause. Anthony Schwartz he's... from Auburn speed. Yeah, and if he's got a six foot two frame and has good hands, I think he could be a first round draft pick. I've been high on him since the second he stepped on campus. I'm getting there. I'm very intrigued by him. He was not a guy who was like on my radar all that much i think before maybe the last month or so um but he's there now like i'm even um garrett wilson to the slot i think can be really fun but jamison williams like has piqued my interest even more than how many touchdowns could he get over the top this year that was like the patented ted ginn play just run straight as fast as you can and we'll throw it over the top just run by everybody well it's kind of an it's an interesting thing because like i don't think justin field's Justin Fields' deep ball, I think, could use a little calibration. Um, I just don't think that was a particularly accurate pass for him last year. He missed Chris Olave a couple times, and it's like uh, I don't think you can overthrow Jamison Williams 
Um, but well, Bo Nix could see how they try to. Yeah, Bo Nix can over can overthrow. Uh, what's that guy's name again? Anthony Schwartz. Anthony Schwartz. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see how they use Jamison Williams. Like, is it, is he going to be a Ted? Well, Ted Ginn did a little bit of everything, but is he going to be like Devin Smith? Or they might use him like Paris Campbell and toss him across her and watch him run. I don't know. Like I, I like the idea of like how was the, the, your perfect alignment for like the way Ohio State's receivers should line up? Because I think that Jamison is an outside receiver. You got Wilson in the slot who runs great yeah. routes, can jump up and catch anything, and like. But he's not the prototypical slot receiver that you think of like with Ohio State. He's like a solid route runner. I don't think he's quite as fast, but also like is the possession guy that you throw to on third and six and also can make great plays downfield. I think he's like it's hard for me to like box any of these guys in because they're so good and so versatile. But like Jamison Williams is the guy that stutter steps and takes the top off the defense. And I think that you line that guy out outside and you just like watch every other team in the Big Ten struggle to figure out a way to keep up with him. Yeah, I think you put him outside. I, th- I think with all these guys, like the, the best thing Ohio State has with almost all of its receivers, maybe with the exception of, of G. Scott because he's so big, is you can put them anywhere. Um, so I expect them to move around a lot. I, I'm, I'm still hesitant to say they're going to play with four-round receivers, although maybe it does come to that, or at least in, in, in some instances. But I, I think I agree with you. Like Olave and, and Williams are, are the Z and the X, however you want to label it. I don't think it matters anymore. And Garrett Wilson's in the slot. I think Wilson is – if you think about the guys they've played there, so it was like KJ Hill, Paris Campbell, Curtis Samuel before that. Um, Wilson's the most complete receiver I think they've played in that role since like the Urban for Meyer exciting as as Garrett Wilson has and like the play he made at Michigan and like what he's going to be. Do you think that it's odd that he's in the slot? Um. Yeah, I think I think I know what you're getting at because he's he's got really good ball skills and he's really explosive and he's got like a really big catch radius for a guy who's who's just about six nobody foot, since six Michael one. Thomas has been able to go up and get a ball the way he does. Yeah, so you think to yourself like, why would you put that guy in a position where like short area quickness is like and playing in yes. space is like at a, is what you need? But when you talk to people about Garrett Wilson, like they bring up his spatial awareness a lot, like his his ability, and he was a basketball player, and like it's a cliche, but I think that matters in that role. Like basket, that's like spatial awareness, getting open, like within the zone and the defensive finding the soft spots. I think translates well to playing an inside receiver position, whether that's tight end or slot receiver, like Garrett Wilson's going to play. So, I think it does make sense. Actually, um, I like the idea of putting there. I don't think he's going to be there all the time. I think he can move him around because you also have Smith and Jigba and Mookie Cooper, who can play in the slot as well. Um, but I think it makes sense of their top three guys. When you have Williams and Olave and Wilson, which one of those three makes the most sense to play in the slot? I think it's Wilson based on his overall. Skill yeah, set. I mean, I just thought that it might be Olave because he has the body type and the about, speed and the quickness and the and the route running ability that like seems more prototypical for that position. And like sometimes I wonder too. It's like in the pursuit of trying to get the four or three best receivers on the field, do you play people out of position to accomplish that, or do you try to like play into the hands of the best player on your team? And it's like whatever Chris Olave's strength is is like. Would you rather him play out of position somewhat to get Garrett Wilson and Jamison Williams on the field, or do you want to take the best player and put him in the best spot for him, and then worry about the rest after that? And I don't know if that's what Ohio State's doing, but I think it's an interesting discussion in the in the sense of you've got eight players that can potentially play for four spots. Like, how do you how do you balance that out? 
I don't know about Olave's short area quickness. I think he's got really good long speed, and he's a good ball tracker. He's a little more frail is not the right word, but like he's like 180 something pounds, and Garrett Wilson's a little like stockier, well put together. I think can handle playing inside and taking some of the hits you're going to take when you're when you're catching passes over the middle. I don't. I think I might disagree that Olave would be the ideal guy for that kind of role. I think it's much more Wilson, and then you have Olave and Jamison Williams with that like elite long speed ball tracking size. Um, I think this makes. And then sense. you roll out. Uh six total players in all these positions and put them in like who's the number two slot guy my guess would be smith and jigba i think you mix in mookie cooper with some like jet sweeps some design stuff um but i think smith and jigba is a little more complete and i think you get him because from what i understand mookie cooper is a little bit ahead of schedule from what they think right like having not played a senior year yeah it's like getting to the point now where it's almost overwhelming trying to like juggle who plays where I think Mookie is going to be used like not quite like Curtis Samuel to the extent where he's going to like line up and be the number two tailback, um, but like some combination of like Curtis Samuel, Paris Campbell, where you get him the ball quickly close to the line of scrimmage and watch him go because he's he's pretty well put together. He's not the biggest guy, tallest guy in the world, but he's almost built like a running back. Played running back in high school, um, and I think they'll utilize that. Which and and. Maybe he's the guy that we that does some of the stuff that I've always envisioned Demario McCall doing, but maybe he's got some more explosion to him than than McCall has, and he's a little bigger, I think, just naturally bigger. Um, but I think Smith and Jigba would be ahead of him, like the pecking order, playing the slot reps at receiver behind Wilson. And then how do you get G Scott involved? Because like as we mentioned earlier on, like he is he like outside with Jamison Williams? Yeah, I think both those guys. I think. I think both Fleming and Scott are are just the number twos at the outside spot. And however you want to label them, I, th- I think Scott is like more of a big possession type than Fleming is. I think Fleming probably has a little more versatility to him um, just in terms of speed. Um, but, yeah, they're like the number two guy. It's, it's, I fully expect the depth chart to be Olave, Williams, Wilson, Scott, Fleming, Smith, and Jigba behind those guys and that's your your top six and then you mix Mookie Cooper in and some of the older guys I think we were wondering if they'd be part of the pecking order I'm just, I'm just not sure they're there. Do you think Ohio State would trade one of their five-star freshmen for Bijan Robinson? Mm, no. You don't? Maybe. Because I just feel like they have too many. Well, they have too many. I think you can say they have too many right now, but like Chris Olave is gone after this year. I know. I know. I just. They're also bringing in a lot behind. I know. (laughs) They are are loading up at receiver for sure. Um, Ballard's a a stud. Jaden Ballard's really good. Yeah. Marvin Harrison's coming in. Emeka Buka, I think they're going to get. Yeah. Um, So, like, next year, ask me that question again. uh, Brian Hartline out there recruiting the running back position. They got Trevion Henderson coming in. Who looks awesome? Like a little, he's he's a little different. That guy. I think he's he's going to be the starter next year. Uh, I want to do this uh, before we wrap up the receiver discussion. I went and looked these up on Pro Football Focus. Last year, Chris Olave had five point four targets per game. What do you think that number is in twenty twenty? Eight. Eight's a lot. I know. Um, it's at the revenge tour, isn't year, it? Like, isn't this the, uh, you know, yeah, uh, can yeah. we to play into the, 
you know, can't get last year's Fiesta Bowl off his mind, is super motivated, is the guy he's going to just terrorize people? Last year, Garrett Wilson was fifth among receivers in targets per game. He had three. What's that number? Three and a half. Three and a half? Four. I think it's at least five. Playing in the slot, I think it's at yeah. least five. Um, but I do think Olave and Wilson. It's not that be. I don't trust his ability and like his role this year. It's whether or not I trust how many targets all these guys are going to get. It's like hard. And like I know I like went above and beyond. I was just trying to make a point with Olave, but like I don't know if I trust how much they're all going to be on the field in totality to get those targets. Yeah, that's hard to peg down, and and so is this other question that I want to ask you. Justin Fields threw the ball twenty five times per game last year. That's not accounting for other dropbacks where he was sacked or he, or he ran the ball on a scramble. How many times per game do you think he'll be throwing the ball? And for reference, Dwayne Haskins threw it thirty eight times per game in twenty thirty three. So an uptick of eight per game. Yeah, I which I I think I I think I can get on board. No with. Dobbins. Um, no Dobbins. Um, I think you'll. I think they're. They feel they're very strong at this position. It depends on how the freshmen come along, but but I think I can get on board. I can get get on board with at least thirty, and even that five more times per game is is significant. I think that gets Olave up closer to eight targets, like you're talking about. Victor Wilson up to five, um, and like some of these freshmen between like three mm-hmm. and four, maybe one or two for the running back, none for the tight ends because they don't throw <laughs> the ball to them. Um, yeah, I think I think I can get with that. Get with that too. And I expect, like my expectation, like I've said, I've said this becomes more of a vehicle for Fields in last year than it was, or sorry, this year than it was last year. Doesn't necessarily mean throwing the ball over the yard, but I kind of think they're going to throw it all over the mm-hmm. yard. Not to the extent of 2018, but certainly closer to that than they were Absolutely. last year. All right, what's your scale of one to ten comfort level with the ten. receivers? Where you at? Ten quarterbacks Ooh. and quarterbacks a ten, and receivers are a ten. That's the last ten. Tens, tens around. I'm at like a like a high seven. The receivers, Are yeah, you nuts. No, because like Chris Olave is very good. I think Garrett Wilson will be good, but he's moving to a new role, and then it's like you're banking on a bunch of freshmen being awesome, and maybe they'll be awesome. Yeah, when you have five that have to be it, awesome, and only two are awesome, then I am approaching it with cautious. Optimism I give it a ten with a high <laughs> with a high seven that can certainly be bumped up to. And eight by like the first. Ohio State only has to hit on twenty five percent of their freshmen for them to have the best receiving core in America. Alabama's receivers are pretty good. Yeah, no, I know, but I'm. I don't know if they're (laughs) as deep. I don't know if they're as deep either. I don't. I don't know that information offhand, but. Uh, Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, John Mechie. Yeah, like they're. They're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think Garrett Wilson's going to be that, and I think Olave already belongs in that conversation. So, I think so too. It's just like who's the, is is the third guy that good, I don't know. or is the collection of numbers three, four, and five that good that you feel the same way? I, don't I, I know. still. I'm at a high seven. A ten. I'm at a high seven. We'll see. He's at. He's at. A you better ten. write he's these down, ten with the core. I should write yeah. these down. I didn't write down the first two, but he's at a ten with quarterback and a ten with receiver, and I think a six Look with out running here. back. Yeah, here comes the number one passing offense in the yeah, country. Isn't that what we've been Your saying for the past six months? <laughs> yeah, we've been dancing around it, I guess. Yeah, but yeah that's been the game. Okay, we'll wrap up there. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of 4 to 6 with A&B. Again, I'll ask you to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash 4-6. Still get you $1 per month on an annual subscription. Please leave any 
five-star Apple reviews. If you have the time for us, that helps us out too. We appreciate the few people who had left some since the last episode. And we'll be back later this week. We'll do another position preview. We'll answer some of your subscriber questions. And we'll talk to you guys then. Thank you.